It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, welcome to Davos. I'm Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column, and today we're bringing you two podcasts in one. I'm recording live from the Congress Centre here at the World Economic Forum, where we've been doing special daily podcasts all week up in the Swiss Alps. This episode is going to be both your daily Davos Confidential and your regular weekly EU Confidential. And it's a great lineup. We've got two Prime Ministers for you. We have interviews with Dutch PM Mark Rutte and Polish Premier Mateusz Morawiecki. And we'll also speak to Bill McGlashan. He's a cool guy, and it's a really good interview. He's a major investor via TPG and CEO of the Rise Fund. That's an impact investing fund he co-founded with Bono. But first, let's talk about today at Davos. Joining me now is Florian Ada, one of Politico's managing editors. Florian, you saw these rather interesting scenes as Donald Trump descended on Davos. What was your reaction? It was really very interesting because, you know, we have around 70 leaders, heads of state to government here, and no one gets so much interest and curiosity than, than Donald Trump did today. When he walked up the stairs from the ground floor to the first floor in the Congress Center, everybody really was staring, looking, uh, taking People photos. were nearly falling over the railing trying to get a photo. Indeed, but it was totally silent. That was the strange thing, you know, not a, not a single applause. It was just strange. I don't think people knew what to do. There was this kind of gold rush element where people saw the celebrity and they imagined the personal gain from having some connection to Trump. But I think there's still some kind of deep down distaste that they feel when they think about a guy like that. So it, yeah, it was a very weird feeling. But Theresa May must be happy. He was very kind to her in that initial press yeah, remark. Yeah, saw that. They had, a, they had a bilateral, the two together, and he said... Um, that he is very much on the same wavelength than the Prime Minister is and has great admiration for everything she does. And she, must, she must be pleased, but I'm um, uh, not sure if it helps her at home, let me put it like that. Indeed. And now Theresa May herself gave a rather unusual speech at today's conference session. There were a lot of empty seats when she got on stage. They filled up a little bit, but still a couple of hundred empty by the end of that speech. It was a short speech. And she actually started by referring to her 2017 Davos speech, which was widely considered to be a disaster. So that was very odd. And she essentially was putting forward a pitch that uh, the new global Britain is going to be digital Britain. But she didn't say it quite so coherently. She, I think a lot of people were confused about why she did this tech-only speech and didn't mention Brexit or really the EU. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the people that I spoke with afterwards, they said, oh, why did she do the tech speech? It was a, you know, a data, the speech on data and how to use 
visit and everything, but it had nothing to do with Brexit in the eyes of many. It was indeed a little bit weird. Yeah, and I caught up with Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator oh, afterwards. He well, he didn't listen to the speech. He, in oh, fact, he was busy with other things. So, uh, you know, his main question is why couldn't Britain have been a global Britain inside the EU? There's nothing stopping Britain be a global Britain, is his perspective. So I think many people were a little bit confused by that approach today. Well, also because, you know, you make a pitch that Britain is the tech nation of the future. Of course, they are a leading nation in tech and, and there's a lot of investment there and a lot of lot of business going on. Still, it might be, you know, partly a problem if you don't have, the, don't have access to labor force, to workforce from the EU, from other countries anymore. And the same with data agreements and data flow between different EU countries. Um, I'm not so sure what Britain falling out of those agreements would make for a data and tech nation in Great Britain. Well, Britain's new tech minister, Matt Hancock, is going to have a handful. He's going to have to go out there and strike sector-specific data deals with allies around the world, the Australias, the Canadas, countries like that, hopefully also the United States from their perspective. I think the speech also tells us a little bit about where tech is in the eyes of politicians. We were talking earlier in the week about how the magic spell around tech and Silicon Valley is now broken and tech is being treated like any other sector in terms of how you regulate it, how you uh, treat its CEOs. And Theresa May had some very sharp lines there where she said, don't become a terrorist platform, don't become a pedophile app. She really wasn't mincing her words there and I don't think we would have heard that about Silicon Valley in the past. Probably not, indeed. Angela Merkel, by the way, yesterday spoke about parts of that too when she said that the EU has yet to define their approach to data regulation, let me put it, let me put it that way, on that spectrum between China and the US, basically, and she urged the EU to find their own approach. Well, if Angela Merkel can't help the EU find an approach, I don't know who can. Thanks for joining us, Florian. Let's get on to these Always Prime welcome. Minister interviews. Voila. Now it's time to hear from Mark Ruta. We caught up with the Dutch Prime Minister outside the Public Figures Lounge inside the Davos Congress Centre. It's basically the place in the whole Congress Centre where you're going to have the greatest concentration of national leaders and royals and people like that. Prime Minister Mark Ruta, welcome to Davos Confidential. Thanks for joining. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, Theresa May, she's going to speak in a few minutes. So it's probably the one moment of the week where Brexit is a little bit on people's minds. And the Netherlands, you are core to that liberal group of countries inside the EU. And with the UK going, you're, you're basically the leader of that pack. Are you ready to step up? And how are you going to assume that role? Well, we are four times smaller in our overall size of our economy than the UK. So we need our partners. That's why we are very hard working on, with others in the European Union to build the coalition which collectively can have that voice of free trade, of um, completion of the internal single market where still so much needs to be done in terms of digital and services. So yes, uh, we are working very hard on that and we hate the fact that the UK is leaving for the UK itself but also for this reason. As an open trading nation like close to the UK, you're not suffering, but you're exposed to whatever risk is going to come after 2019. Yes, of course. So we have two risks. One is that in the EU, as you rightly said, we will lose this important advocate of free trade. And the second risk, of course, is that it will somehow impact our bilateral trade with the UK. And that's why it's crucial that the UK comes to a decision on what they think should be the next step and the future relationship. 
And now the Netherlands, as one of the original EU members, you have a reputation as being pro-European, but also very tough uh, before you agree to any further integration. And we're obviously right in this uh, window of opportunity now. If we're going to do more integration, it will have to be reasonably soon or to get the ball rolling. Uh, what's your pitch there? What are you going to have to see in order to support more when it comes to economic and monetary union, banking union and so on? First priority, internal market free trade agreements. Then, of course, we need on the EMU, we need to bring the instruments in place which will encourage and, if necessary, almost force countries to reform, to get the debt levels down, uh, to reform the economies, so that the collective of the EMU, and this was the basic promise in 1991 in Maastricht, the collective promise of the euro, that we would all collectively converge to a higher level of wealth, of success, whatever, that we start to deliver on this, because we are not doing it at the moment. So, yes, we need to complete the banking union, but there we need to be very careful what does risk reduction mean and at what level can you take the next step. And this has to be worked through, and I'm not sure we are all in agreement on this. Yes, we need to complete the EMU, but then we need to bring in place the instruments to really encourage countries to reform. For example, by making the country-specific reforms from the Commission, make them almost a guidance on the question of countries can collect money from the cohesion funds and from the common agricultural policy, all these European funds which support countries, that you make it more or less dependent on the question whether these countries are implementing the necessary reforms. And we need something to deal with sovereign debt restructuring which is part of how can we bring down the overall risk level and, and make sure that not only the public taxpayer is involved, but particularly the private sector. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm glad you mentioned services a little while back when we were talking. Uh, Fritz Olkerstein obviously had the first go at a big uh, services single market. But in my mind, actually, there's a bit of a myth when we talk about the single market, where it obviously exists for goods and, yeah. and products, but it's really not there for a lot of services, which is most of the economy. Has the Netherlands got any ideas of how to, to push that forward? But it is there. All the proposals on the table, uh, on digital and on services, on capital, on energy uh, and if we would implement all the plans which have been agreed a number of times now we would add twice the size of the Dutch economy to the overall European economy that's 1.3 1.4 1.5 billion trillion euros uh, more than Spain uh, 4 million jobs so I mean why don't we do this because in some countries there are interests, uh, political reasons not to do this. In Italy, still over 2,000 professions are protected. Yep. Protected professions. So we, we uh, th th these are the areas where we need to work on and, and make headway. And so, so when you mention completion of, the, of, of Europe, this is where we need to make it complete. And maybe one final question, or two, I'll sneak in two. Uh, Brexit and Trump, we were hearing a lot yesterday that they are mobilizing forces for other Europeans. Brexit forces the EU to be united. Trump made the EU think a lot harder about its hard power, about its defense cooperating. Um, do you think there's truth to that? Is that going to be the, the impetus that pushes some of those demands that you've just made? No, not at all. I don't believe in that story. Because I, I never, I'm never sure what people mean when they say we need to, to pull together. Yeah, mm -hmm. And then we are together. We are, one, we are one a club, the European Union, and for very good reasons. Being a member collectively, uh, creates uh, safety and stability. It creates jobs through the internal market and free trade agreements. So there, there are so many reasons to pull together and to work together. But then on completing this and completing that, we have to be very careful on what we want to achieve. 
I'm against risk sharing. I'm against uh, this idea of a transfer union. And if that is what some people mean, I will, I will very much plead against it. But if people mean create a higher level of growth and success, I will be uh, your champion. And on that transfer union point, is it a ideological concern or a pragmatic concern that you need to bring your people along with you? You can't just run out as the prime minister and sign off on things that your people aren't ready to well, f- First of all, I need to bring myself along. And I don't understand it myself. So I, I do think it is not popular with, very popular with the population. Uh, but I'm not even there yet because I, I cannot understand why you would need a transfer union because if take the Netherlands we brought down our deficit below 60% if we would be hit by an asymmetric shock which I don't hope and don't expect we could easily borrow 20-30% of our GDP which is about 200 billion euros to deal with the crisis in the banking sector or wherever uh, it is necessary Uh, and that is your shock absorption mechanism you need it at a national level not collectively at a European level Well, in particular, if uh, by contributing at the European level, you're reducing your ability to then uh, apply the national shop absorption. Uh, That's also a risk, but but, uh, I cannot explain to myself why in the Netherlands we have implemented reforms, fiscal austerity, brought down the deficit. We have now a deficit surplus. We have a debt below 60%. We are growing at consistently more than 3%. Our unemployment is below 4%. We have done all this with good results, but people were not always happy with all the reforms and, and fiscal austerity. And then for other countries to tell us, okay, great that you have done that, could you not help us? No, you have to help yourself. And then collectively we can take care of uh, the collective space, which is the EU, the EU as a whole. Well, Mark Rutte, thanks for joining us. You were listening to Mark Rutte, Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Now it's time to hear from Matt Kaminsky, Politico Europe's executive editor, interview Mateusz Morawiecki, the Polish Prime Minister. Poland's been in a very tricky situation of late in terms of its EU relations, and they're here in Davos to help rebrand themselves globally. Tommy, you've just taken over as the head of government in Warsaw. What are you trying to do? What is your own mandate for yourself in government? How are you? How is this government different than the previous government? What is your guiding sort of mission in a way? I think that it's critically important for the whole European Union to find a way forward, to find a common ground to resolve some critically important issues like migration, but also refugees, like inequalities, like imbalances between the north and the south. And in this very context, I see also a role for Poland to promote this type of economic growth, which is at the same time socially inclusive. We call it here Solidarne. We call it in Poland based on solidarity based. And we are doing this with huge success, predominantly because we have actually very seriously addressed tax collection issues, tax gathering issues. We already have recorded data for 2017 and and we have phenomenal data from VAT collection and from other taxes. And we've invested in inverted commas, but not inverted commas at the same time, this money in groups of population, also less wealthy people, much less wealthy people, and this proves working quite well because not only consumption is is growing but also small and mid-sized and micro and small companies which are 99.9% Polish companies, they are doing a very good job for the economy and for themselves. And you have reshuffled the the cabinet and from the outside the message that at least we heard was that Poland wanted to 
press reset on its relationship with the EU, that it wanted to put forward a softer image toward its partners in the EU. Is this why you, you made those changes? The, the, the reset is too strong a word, uh, and softer image, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I am what I am, and uh, the government is what, what it is. The changes were not dictated by anyone. The changes were important to actually bring some new thinking to the government, and this was the decision of ours. And the most important thing today is that we try to find common ground with with Europe, find a common denominator in different areas, rather than waiting what, what is going to happen. And I think that we have also a very positive agenda with Europe, not only the digital Europe, the circular economy, uh, sharing economy, mm-hmm. um, but also I believe that Poland, through our moves towards promoting freedom to provide services, is contributing to increased competitiveness of the whole European Union. Obviously, the, the Commission has recommended the indication of Article 7. I wonder... Are you working with the Commission to try and resolve this issue? How, how concerned are you about the Commission's finding and, and its concerns about the rule of law? And perhaps shortly, you know, in brief, why do you think that, that it might be misguided? Well, I, uh, yes, we, 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 we have immersed in the, in the dialogue with the Commission because I believe that lots of what has happened was coming back to misunderstanding. But also, well, you were, you were born in Poland as well. What, what year, if I may ask? 1971. 71. So you remember the martial law in Poland and mm-hmm. the 80s. This was the dark communist times. And during those darkest communist times, there were judges which were very submissive, subservient to, to the communist regime. And even today in the Supreme Court, we have 11 or 12 judges out of a couple of dozens of judges, which were very actively giving appalling, disgusting sentences to, to Polish freedom fighters of, of those times. Mm-hmm. I was myself very much involved in the democratic movement of the, of the 80s, and for me it is something beyond my imagination that in the free Poland we have not done the reform like in the Democratic Republic of Germany in the 1990, where only 30% of all the prosecutors and judges went positively through this verification or vetting process. And this, this is a long shadow of communism, which we now are dealing with. Mm-hmm. And actually many regimes of a similar kind, like France, Vichy, France, post-war era, 1959, Michel Debray, and then Georges Pom- George Pompidou under France, the, um, Charles de Gaulle, they have actually done a very similar changes, completely revamping, completely revamping in France. We are not completely revamping the, the National Judiciary Council, Supreme Court, and so on, because there is, in the judiciary system, which is not verified, which, is not ve- which was not vetted, there are, there are lots of misbehaviors, which we have been observing over during right. The years. But even critics on the right in Poland sort of raise concerns about these are fairly young institutions. Democracies are made out of institutions. If one party feels that it has the, the mandate to un, 
make to weaken institutions in effect or to sort of recreate them in its own image, this will undermine democracy yeah. and undermine a very successful democracy. And, and this is why this is, this is not happening. We are not weakening institutions. I'm absolutely convinced that we are strengthening those institutions. The judiciary system in Poland, after our reforms, is going to be more independent, more objective, more transparent, and more effective and efficient, because I don't know if you, you are aware that Poland, in Poland we spent by far the most, the, 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 the highest amount of money on the judiciary system comparing to the average of the European Union. So we are the least efficient and at the same time the trials and, and the, mm -hmm. the whole cases last for 10 years or, or, or longer. What is the gravest threat to Poland today? Well, like I, I treat very seriously the Russian threat. Mm -hmm. I think what Russia is doing in Ukraine is, is a very dangerous thing. We therefore talk to our partners from the European Union and from the United States in particular here in, in Davos and elsewhere about how to cope with this threat. Like I, I started this day today with Rick Perry, a Secretary of, mm -hmm. of Energy in the US, and we spoke about Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is presented by Germany as a business type project, which, which it is not, because if it is established, it will make Ukrainian gas pipeline system obsolete, and then what can happen with the war in Donbas? Will the Russian army put uh, march into the interior of Ukraine? We, of course, don't know. We hope not. But it's better that we have uh, the second and third line of defense rather than be without those kind of uh, weapons. So, yeah. so th this is this type of job party we are dealing with. Uh, other, the, the Franz other Timmermans. One? Is Franz Timmermans? Uh, the other one? No, the other one. <laughs> okay. uh, Franz Timmermans is, 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 is doing his job and we are doing our job and I hope we'll bring our position cl closer and closer with each other. Uh, the other one is the economic situation in the world. Every now and again you can hear some tam-tams from, even from here in Davos, that there is a lack of appropriate fuel for the world economy and the monetary policy cannot be the major element of economic growth. And at the same time we are emphasizing necessity to fight with tax havens mm -hmm. here in Davos and to improve tax collection system, not only in Poland but also in the EU. Your relations with Berlin, Angela Merkel was just here on stage. What, it's been a bit of tension in the last couple of years, demands for reparations. What do you want to see out of the German relationship? Well, business relationships are, are good and sometimes even very good. We were able to attract greenfield projects for direct investment in terms of greenfield um, into Poland. And from the political point of view, we have actually one major discrepancy of view, which is how to treat quotas on refugees. We do believe that we contribute to the easing of tensions our eastern flank of the at the eastern flank of the European Union, because we have some a couple of thousands of registered refugees from Ukraine, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, and some other post-Soviet republics, but. Uh, not registered, we have a couple of uh, dozens of thousands of those uh, of those refugees from Ukraine, statistically, and we will do our best to make better statistical efforts to present to our friends 
in Brussels that we are doing our part uh, with regard to re- refugees. But we also have an appointment with uh, Chancellor Merkel in a couple of weeks' time where I'm meeting her in, in Berlin and then I go to Munich for this security conference there. So the relationships are positive. Does the Polish-German relationship need a reset? I, I wouldn't say so. I, I think it, it requires regular dialogue and I, I believe we will find a solution even for the most difficult question, which is today this uh, quotas on refugees, because we look at this issue in a different way as the German political elites looks at this. Mr. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Thank you. Quick reminder, if you're new to listening to this podcast, please remember to rate, review or subscribe to it on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or wherever you found it. We really want to grow the community and we're going to keep delivering you this great content every week. Now it's time to hear from Bill McGlashan from TPG and the Rise Fund. He's got basically the royal family of the philanthropic world behind him when he is raising money to do purpose-driven impact investing. Bill McGlashan, thanks for joining us on Davos Confidential. Happy to be on here. Thank you, Ryan. Now, you're the man of the moment. Impact investing is one of the themes that we're hearing more and more about at Davos. And I want to put it to you that you've got this sort of who's who uh, helping you out or advising you, ranging from Bono to Jeff Skoll. You had the Obamas involved when you were getting the Rise Fund started. Uh, Tell us a little bit. Do you think that this could even be the most pure form of the Davos ethos, successful ethical capitalism that's getting out there scaling and actually making a difference to your investors and to the world. I would hope that's the case. You know, uh, Bono's, who's my co-founder along with Jeff Skoll, so they do more than advising, they're actually working very hard. But uh, Bono's been quoted as saying that capitalism isn't immoral, it's amoral. And we need to tame this wild beast Uh, called capitalism. There's an aspirational dimension to this, which is if we're trying to address these big, hairy issues that we face as a world, social and environmental challenges that are of a scale where the UN estimates a $40 trillion price tag for us to get to a just world by 2030, it's going to take the sustainability and scalability of capitalism to to get to the finish line. So we need to direct all the innovation and talent that real real, uh, performant businesses can bring to bear to address these big problems we're facing. And there's no shortcuts here, is there? Like, you've got to deliver for investors. It's about the rigors of being a serious business. Um, How does that work in practice? How do you actually go out and select companies and projects to invest in? Well, what what we explained to our investors when we raised the Rise Fund, which largely came from institutions that uh, are first and foremost fiduciaries that aren't in the business of of, uh, making philanthropic commitments, but instead are there to make a return for their constituency, we had to convince them that there was no difference in the underwriting of an impact business versus a non-impact business. And that's a really important point to understand because a you know, gravity exists for all businesses. Mm-hmm. The fact that a business produces outputs that generate social and environmental outcomes doesn't mean you don't need the same rigor, the same 
management excellence, unit economics, competitive positioning that any other business would need. So we address it the same way we have as a firm for 25 years now, which is we go find great entrepreneurs. We invest against themes all mm -hmm. over the world in financial services, healthcare, industrials, um, uh, education, et cetera, in all the different sectors where we have big teams. And we look for investments that are interesting. And then we ask the secondary question, which is, is that a business that's going to achieve a level of impact that we can underwrite that impact, mm -hmm. that we can measure it, we can bake it into the way we monitor the business and report on it at the end of the day? And is there a need for speed here? I mean, I'm based in Brussels. We've got a lot of European commissioners. They talk a very good game on innovation. Yeah. And they're actually doing some really interesting funds of fund of funds stuff. But they talk about things like patient capital. Um, are yeah. you actually going to, are you there to try and scale quickly, deliver returns quickly, or are you really willing to play a long game? We have tremendous urgency around timing. There's mm -hmm. the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals that are targeting a just world by 2030 require $40 trillion. We have a gap every year of $1.5 trillion toward that end. So we're not even close to getting there unless we activate capital. What's been missing is uh, institutional quality investment in the impact space and real rigor on, around measurement. Because for someone to invest against an impact outcome, they have to know that, that the reporting on impact is credible. So we had to bring enough you know, resources to bear to figure out a way to actually underwrite impact make sure that all the groups that have been doing this work helped us because there's been a lot of great work over the last decade by the early pioneers like Omidyar and mm -hmm. Capricorn and others in the space. And what was motivating you to, to set up this fund? Because you were successful at TPG. You didn't need yep. it to, to have a good life. Was it that you saw some kind of failure or vacuum in politics? Or is it that actually you can get better returns by investing yeah. this way? My personal journey began actually right out of college. I started a nonprofit, an NGO called World Service, and I was backed by the United Nations Development Program and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and I moved to Dar I spent time in Dar es Salaam and Costa Rica and other places mm -hmm. around the world and worked very hard to build a compelling uh, NGO, nonprofit, uh, focused on poverty at the end of the day. And, um, and I became convinced through that process that scalable business models paired with philanthropy in those uh, mm -hmm. traditional efforts was critical for us to make the progress we need to make. And I actually went from that life after going to Stanford Business School to uh, investing, originally to do this kind of investing. So I, I started TPG Growth as a global platform, investing in places like Vietnam and Myanmar and Sri Lanka and India and China back before India and China were in vogue, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the U.S. Uh, in technology and other innovation businesses, uh, with an eye to creating jobs and creating change through business models, through sustainable, scalable business models. Rise. The only difference with Rise is that we're bringing rigorous impact measurement to the table, and we're partnered with uh, some of the most important figures in the field who are establishing a real standard around this that again will allow others to other other of the efforts in this in this in the field to scale. But my journey began on the nonprofit side of things and I became convinced we weren't going to get there in time. Just demographically, mm -hmm. Africa, for example, they need 15 million jobs a year uh, just to keep up with the demographics. And if you look at what happened in Syria, Europe, for example, looks at Syria. Syria is a drop in the bucket. If yeah. Egypt is unstable, Nigeria will have 500, 500 million people by 2050. So if we don't create real meaningful development in these markets, we've, we've uh, 
uh, set ourselves up for a real, real challenge. And, and from a hum- humanity perspective, these people deserve an opportunity. And I think that's a point people often overlook. I mean, you can argue, is there value in traditional models of yep. aid and, and development funding? But what you can't argue is that that model would be able to get you to the point that you're talking about in 2030 or 2040. It just definitely can't do that. But mentioning India reminds me that you used to live in India. And India is making a really big push here at Davos this week. Uh, Davos, I've got to get it right, Davos. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Or or is India um, breaking through the way that they should be in these sort of circles? Well, there's been great progress. I moved to India for a year with my family. Uh, my kids went to an all-Indian school, the Ambani school. They weren't particularly happy with me, as you can imagine. Uh, but my wife and I felt it was important for our children to realize the world is not Marin County, California, which it turns out when you land in Mumbai, you realize very quickly it isn't. Yeah. Um, and, and I wanted to get closer to our business in Asia and really make sure we were integrated in the way we need to be to be effective in these markets. So we moved over there. I, I would say the progress of late has been uh, excellent. Uh, in India, um, but what's interesting is it comes down to some of the same drivers, the same thematic drivers that are creating progress and innovation elsewhere. If you look at Geo and what Mukesh Ambani's done with his mobile phone business, mm-hmm. he's now up to about 175 million subscribers, uh, which is just stunning to imagine that historically had no access to mobile telephony. And mobile telephony brings all sorts of benefits, economic progress and transparency and educational opportunities, healthcare, et cetera. You look at the digital identity initiative, Adar, and the fact that now people have an have, have the government has a way of directing uh, capital directly to those individuals instead of going through all the intermediaries who are otherwise siphoning off you know the capital. So there's progress. They have a long way to go with infrastructure. They're making a real push. Interestingly, he's uh, Prime Minister Modi has has uh, challenged the country to have 175 gigawatts of mm-hmm. solar. Uh, of renewable energy, wind, and 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 hydro and solar uh, um, in the in the near near future. Yeah, that's true. That's a turnaround. I mean, like it's, a it's few years ago, India wasn't really even conceding climate change was a thing. No, and that's now right. That's a that's a big difference. No, it's and for them to with the energy issues they've had historically to turn that aggressively to mm. renewable sources is is amazing. And here's a thought bubble, really just coming straight out of my brain, unfiltered mm. now. In a lot of countries, I have a fear that because of the digital revolution and the AI um, that follows, there's a risk that some of those countries aren't going to have a middle-class boom. They're going to join the competitiveness race too late to be more competitive than the machines, basically. But it sounds like what you're talking about in India is that perhaps actually digital is the route to a middle-class revolution because it's not a big middle class there now but if you're getting that sort of scale 200 million well, people that, on mobile that, then... that's the key i mean you're raising exactly the right question because you know india's had bursts of growth growth in the past but it's led to a consolidation of wealth in a few industrialists that doesn't help the country at all to your point you need a middle class here you know everywhere in the world you know the the, the key driver of social stability and and progress is a robust middle class and um, and, and there is hope. There's also challenge, though. I mean, I think the, the, all, the, all the discussion here about globalism and uh, nationalism and all of these tensions that we're talking about are, are, are for, for most people in the world, are another word for the system isn't working for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned I'm losing my job. I'm worried my children aren't going to have jobs. And these are very real issues. And if you look at what AI has the potential to bring, it could be transformative or it could be mm-hmm. devastating. Um, you know, people debated coal in the U.S., coal jobs, that's 15,000 jobs. Meanwhile, 
trucking alone, eight and a half million jobs. Yeah. So we're it's talking going to be gone in 10 tech, years. Are we even going to have drivers then? I mean, Not professionally. Shift. So what are we going to do? So there needs to be, this is, goes back to the point of impact. It's not that, as I began this comment with Bono's quote, it's not that, that capitalism is immoral, it's amoral. Unless it's guided with some way of measuring the impact. If you think about it differently, every dollar invested has an impact. It's either a bad impact or a good impact or has limited impact. Whether it's government investment, corporate investment, private equity type investment, mm -hmm. institutional investment, even the dollars that are sitting on the sideline, all the wealth that's sitting in bank accounts doing nothing, there, it, it creates an interesting uh, lens through which you can look at this from an opportunity cost perspective when you start thinking about capital having impact. And we need a lot of impact. The fact is there are a lot of people that are, not, are suffering today that are not part of the program, despite all the growth that we're seeing of late, and uh, they need, it needs to be addressed. Well, there's a message for everyone with money lying in or around their accounts. Put it to work. Bill is coming to grab your money and put it to work. <laughs> Bill McGlashan, thank you for joining us on Davos Confidential. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Davos Confidential. A big thanks to Andrew Gray and Michelle Stoddart for producing the podcast back in Brussels. If you'd like more information from Politico on everything that's going on up the mountain here, then sign up for our daily Davos Playbook email. Go to register.politico.eu forward slash Davos Playbook. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.